This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. One of the most iconic handshakes of the 20th century took place on September 13, 1993, on the South Lawn of the White House. This handshake between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Palestine Liberation Organization Chairman Yasser Arafat symbolized the possibility of peace for Arab-Israeli relations for the first time in decades. President Bill Clinton presided over the ceremony. Now the efforts of all who have labored before us bring us to this moment, a moment when we dare to pledge what for so long seemed difficult even to imagine, that the security of the Israeli people will be reconciled with the hopes of the Palestinian people and there will be more security and more hope for all. That day, Rabin and Arafat signed what was formally called a Declaration of Principles on Interim Self-Government Arrangements. It's much more widely known as the First Oslo Accord. As the formal name states, Oslo was an interim agreement, an accord meant to pave the way later to a permanent peace. Here's PLO Chairman Arafat speaking through an interpreter right after the signing. Our two peoples are awaiting today this historic hope, and they want to give peace a real chance. And Israeli Prime Minister Rabin. We have no desire for revenge. We have no, we harbor no hatred towards you. We like you, our people. People who want to build a home, to plant a tree, to love, live side by side with you in dignity, in empathy, as human beings, as free men. We are today giving peace a chance and saying to you, and saying again to you, enough. Let us pray that a day will come when we all will say farewell to the arms. At the signing, Israel agreed to accept the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people. The PLO renounced terrorism and recognized Israel's right to exist. Both sides agreed that the Palestinian Authority would be established and assume responsibility over Gaza and the West Bank. And then, crucially, permanent talks would be held later regarding borders, refugees, and the status of Jerusalem. Well, later that day, after the signing ceremony, Rabin spoke at a different press conference, and he seemed less optimistic. To what extent, when we try to hand over gradually responsibility for public order and security of the Palestinians in the densely populated areas, will the Palestinians be able to control it for their own sake? To what extent we will be able to prevent the use of these areas as a springboard for attacks on Israel. From the Palestinians' point of view, the issue will be the economic social development. If we not create a hope, a real one, that is based on realities to the Gazians, that as a result of this agreement, their conditions will be improved, I don't know if the whole ceremony will lead to a solution. 
it did not. Years later, peace talks collapsed. Ideally, people can learn from failure, but often people are doomed to repeat mistakes. So 30 years on, what were the critical mistakes and what can be learned from the failed process launched by the first Oslo Accord? Well, in a moment, we'll hear from a Palestinian legal advisor who participated in talks later in the 90s, specifically at Camp David. But today we're going to begin with Yossi Balin. He was the key initiator of what ended up being the 1993 Oslo Accord. He is also the former Israeli deputy foreign minister. He served in that position from 1992 to 1995. Later on, from 1999 to 2001, he was the Israeli minister of justice. Yossi Balin, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much. Now, I really encourage listeners to stick with us because later in the show, Mr. Balin, I want to ask you about uh, why you've recently suggested that Oslo should just be torn up. But I want to start with that handshake. Where were you standing when Rabin and Arafat shook hands on that day at the White House? It was very hot. I tried to find a, a place with a shadow. Um, among uh, so many uh, people. So uh, I was uh, somewhere in the corner. Mm. And from where you were standing, I'm curious about what you saw with your own eyes, because looking back at the video of that entire ceremony, um, with the distance of 30 years between then and now, it seems rather not just staged, but stiff. That moment of the handshake, it's almost as if Clinton had to bring Rabin and Arafat together. Was there, amongst you and uh, and people that you were at the ceremony with, the same sense of optimism that uh, the speeches seemed to indicate at the time? Well, it was uh, very, very emotional. I mean, for me personally, of course, it was the most important uh, day in my public life. Um, I, I couldn't believe it that something I thought about nine months earlier would become such a huge international uh, focus. And uh, you could see there uh, on the on the White House uh, West Lawn, uh, actually everybody, everybody, prime ministers, foreign ministers, heads of all, uh, international organizations from the UN to many others. And I felt like a bar mitzvah boy when all of them, or many of them, came uh, to me uh, to, to congratulate. And uh, yes, it was, it was seen like something uh, totally unbelievable, uh, but uh, also frightening. Frightening because... I thought from day one that this ceremony was a little bit too big. It was like a peace treaty ceremony, not a, like an interim agreement ceremony of signing. And uh, as a result of it, the expectations were very, very high. And of course, the frustration was very big too, when uh, many things have not been uh, materialized. Mm. Well, so I want to reiterate that you were... Deputy Foreign Minister for Israel in from 92 to 95. And it was you who uh, initiated the process that became that first Oslo Accord. What was it that gave you um, the optimi- optimism or thought that there was an opening 
to uh, enter into talks with uh, with the Palestinians prior to Oslo being signed in that in those first secret meetings that happened in Norway. The the main thing was that the talks between Israel and the Palestinians in the joint, uh, very artificial Jordanian-Palestinian uh, delegation in uh, were were stuck. It was impossible to find solutions to the issues on the agenda. And uh, these uh, talks were a result of the Madrid conference of 91 mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the the invitation to the Madrid conference uh, was written by uh, Secretary of State uh, Jim Baker, who uh, added to the invitations the also the the uh, main lines for the main points for uh, the negotiations, so that nobody would be uh, uh, surprised, and that the results of the conference would be known in advance. And the the on the Israeli-Palestinian. Uh, a dialogue. The idea was to have an interim agreement, and after five years, a permanent agreement. This was the mandate mm-hmm. of of this uh, of of the negotiations. And as I said, they they went nowhere. So what I thought, and I was then in the opposition in '92, uh, that uh, there should be an a uh, behind the scene meetings uh, or a process of meetings between. Uh, the Palestinians and a, a small group of Israelis in order to solve informally all the, the problems on the agenda and then showing the, the results uh, to the leaders on both sides so that they will tell their delegations in Washington to sign the agreement. This was my original uh, idea. And uh, I I thought that all the issues, which I knew exactly what they were, were soluble. And I thought that we could uh, uh, help solving all these uh, issues in quite a short while. Hmm. And uh, so the, the idea was to, to do it behind the, the scene. The problem was that when I came to, uh, to my boss, to uh, Mr. Perez, who was the foreign minister, to tell him that I intended to go to, uh, to Oslo, he uh, exposed to me the secret that he had not to- uh, told me before, uh, and could would he tell me tell me before uh, I would not have uh, taken the the function of a deputy. Uh, the point the point was that Rabin uh, agreed with him uh, that he would not be involved at all with mm. the peace processes, mm. not only with the Palestinians but also with the Lebanese and the Syrians. Uh, and uh, that was quite a humiliating uh, situation. So I could not tell him, hey, I'm going to uh, Oslo to save the world. And I had to cancel my own uh, my own tickets and uh, to ask my uh, friend, uh, Dr. Yair Hirschfeld, to replace me and uh, to negotiate for me. I, I, I don't remember whether I told him the real reason for that. But I said to myself that I could actually come back to Paris, who would have to go to Rabin with uh, any paper, only when I have a paper agreed upon by both sides. Mm. Well, Yossi Bailey, just hang on for a a moment. Forgive me for interrupting. We just have to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear more from you about uh, 
Prime Minister Rabin's um, attitude and desires uh, through 1993. And as I promised, we will also hear from Omar Dajani, who was a legal advisor to the Palestinians. So all that and more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about lessons to be learned from the first Oslo Accord, which was signed 30 years ago in 1993. And we're joined today by Yossi Balin. At the time, he was Israeli deputy foreign minister and also the key initiator for the process that led to the signing in September of 1993. Now, Mr. Balin, just for clarity, when you said uh, you had first gone to Shimon Peres, who was then the... uh, the foreign minister for Israel, and said, we can have these talks, and, I, and you were going to go to Oslo in order to do that. You said that, was he the one who was opposed to it, or or Prime Minister Rabin, or both of them? No, I did not uh, tell uh, Mr. Mr. Perez anything okay. about the talks, because in the, on the same day that I, I intended to tell him, he told me that, he told me the story that uh, Rabin... Uh, agreed to nominate him as a foreign minister, although he did not like him uh, and and was always suspicious of him, uh, provided that he would not uh, be involved with the peace process. Uh So when I heard it, of course, I was shocked. I I, I wouldn't have taken the job uh, uh, to be his deputy had I known uh, that uh, he would not uh, deal with the peace process. I mean, this was my whole world, has been. Uh, so once he told me that, I decided not to inform him about my intention to uh, have this Oslo uh, channel and uh, to get back to him only once I have uh, something uh, in a written manner agreed upon by both sides. Understood. Okay, so does that mean, though, that... Uh, Prime Minister Rabin was not really ever in favor of negotiating with the Palestinians or even recognizing the PLO? No, no, he doesn't say so. I mean, the, the, what it says that the animosity between Paris and Rabin is part of our story. Uh-huh. And that, uh, that had I told Rabin or had Paris told Rabin that I'm 
involved in, in uh, such a channel, uh, Rabin would have immediately say, don't do that. Not because he was against talking to the Palestinians necessarily, but because he didn't want Paris or his people to deal with it. Then who would he have wanted to deal with it? I don't know. I mean, it is su- such a complicated and and uh, problematic story that it is difficult to tell. I mean, usually you have a prime minister, he tells his foreign minister, I want to negotiate with the PLO. Please uh, find a place to do to do that uh, secretly. The, the, prime, the, the foreign minister would tell his uh, obedient uh, deputy minister to do it for him. And then I would uh, talk to the, to the Palestinian side. But it was the other way around. Mm, mm. I ask that because... You know, in this being the 30th year since uh, the first Oslo Accord, there's been a great deal of uh, posthumous analysis, if I can put it that way, about uh, what went wrong in Oslo. And is one of the things that uh, was a mistake it, that there was no clear goal for those, uh, the talks that led to the signing? Because, you know, there are many people who said, well, the goal was trust building, which was critical at that time. But it, what, trust building is different than saying the goal for these talks is a two-state solution. It sounds as if maybe the goals were not so clear because of because of Prime Minister Rabin's lack of desire to to discuss or to discuss fully with the Palestinians. No, not okay. at all. Okay. The, the the story was was like that. The goals were very very clear. And as I said, they are written in the invitation letter of Secretary uh, uh, Baker to to both sides. The goal was to uh, agree upon the details of of an interim agreement of a self-rule for the Palestinians for five years. This was the clear goal. Now, what we did in, in Oslo is that we also referred to the issues which have to be dealt with towards the permanent agreement about which we will uh, negotiate after three years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we we referred to all of them, but we didn't even try to, to solve them. Now, I came at a certain point to Rabin and tell, told him that the, the relations between the two parties are so good that I believe that it it may be better to negotiate directly on the permanent agreement. Mm. But he he did not want it, not because he did not want a permanent agreement, but because he wanted to be loyal to the invitation of Baker and felt that if he doesn't do that, the American side now under Clinton and, and Warren Christopher would not see it as a positive development. Really? So, and and that that is, and there was another point. On the Palestinian side, there was no enthusiasm to get directly to a permanent agreement. For example, the chief negotiator on the Palestinian side, Abu Allah, told me at a later point that the Palestinians were not ready to take upon themselves a state. He said, you, the Jews, you prepared yourself for for thirty years uh, in the in the land of of, of uh, in, in the Holy Land for the moment when you ca- you get a state. 
So you, you had an army, you had, uh, you had institutions and whatever. We had nothing. So we had to invent ourselves. And that was premature. Well, okay, let's we listen. We had a, a public debate after the, the, signature, the, the signing uh, ceremony uh, in, in which he support, I supported getting immediately to the permanent agreement and he was against it. Huh. Okay. That seems very critical to understand. So, Yossi Balin, hang, hang on for just a moment because I want to bring in Omar Dejani right now. He's with us from Sacramento, California. Currently, he's a professor at the McGeorge School of Law at the University of the Pacific. But from 1991 to 2001, he was a legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team at the peace talks at Camp David and Taba. Professor Dejani, welcome to you. Hi there. Thanks very much. It's good to be with you. So tell me uh, what your view is of these sort of uh, critical insights that uh, Yossi Balin is offering to us about why the initial, uh, the first Oslo agreement had weaknesses built into it? Well, let me start by saying that um, I think that if uh, Yossi Balin um, had been Prime Minister of Israel these last 20 years, uh, that we would have achieved peace. Um, uh, he's a person um, whose commitment to trying to advance peace is, is truly um, unmatched. Uh, that said, I, I, I might differ a little uh, with his account. Um, I think that uh, where Yossi and I undoubtedly see things eye to eye is that the Oslo process did begin without a clear vision with regard to the end game. Um, although, uh, as Yossi pointed out, um, uh, there was uh, a sense that during an interim period, the Palestinian Authority would be established and it would have jurisdiction over parts of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, though I think it's very important to add uh, just small parts. Um, at the height of the Palestinian Authority's authority in the West Bank, um, it had full uh, uh, jurisdiction over Palestinians, never any jurisdiction over Israelis, uh, full jurisdiction over Palestinians in less than 25% of the West Bank's territory, um, and uh, civil jurisdiction in another 20%. So always less than half. Um, and uh, not even over all of the Gaza Strip until 2005. So a very uh, a limited authority uh, uh, territorially and um, with fairly limited governmental functions in that space. Um, now, there was a hope that uh, this would be a step toward a two-state solution on the Palestinian side, but um, that was not set out explicitly in the agreements. And where I would differ uh, with, with Yossi is that while um, I think that Palestinians recognized that it would take time to establish a state, what they didn't anticipate was that it would take so long for Israel to accept the idea of the creation of a Palestinian state. That's something that didn't happen until happen till the negotiations that I was involved in, which began in 1999, um, and then well into those negotiations into 2000. Mm. Well, so... Yossi Bailey, let me turn back to you on that, because in those early years, in, in the mid-90s, is, again, in the uh, attempt to learn from history here, was part of the problem 
possibly that peace did not necessarily mean the same things to the Israelis as it did to the Palestinians. Again, I've been reading analysis that says uh, Israel understandably wanted security more than anything. No terrorism, no attacks. But peace, as Omar Dejani is saying here, for the Palestinians involved or the concept of commitment to, to land. Those two things are not the same. They don't have the identical solutions. Was that part of the problem, Yossi Balin? I don't think so. I don't think so. If you ask me the main reason uh, for for uh, Israel, or at least for, for our government uh, then, was to assure that Israel is a Jewish and democratic uh, state. As it was promised uh, exactly uh, 76 years ago by the UN, the, the resolution of the of partition, a Jewish state and an Arab state. And uh, the idea was that uh, if we don't have a border on, on the east side, uh, it would be impossible to, to have a democratic and, and Jewish state uh, together, which was, would be a disaster for us. Uh, at least for the center-left uh, part, uh, part of the Israeli map, and so this was the the main the main issue. Besides the the other issues like uh, like the, the the need that our neighbors will not suffer. I mean, we we understood the suffering of the Palestinian people. We understood what it means to be under occupation. Uh, and and uh, to put an end to occupation was very important for us. I cannot say that it was the first uh, issue on, on the agenda of all of us. What was the first issue was the demographic uh, point. Mm. So, Professor Jijani, let me ask you about something else that uh, you heard Yossi Balin say a few minutes ago, and that is, it's quite something to hear from Mr. Balin that uh, Prime Minister uh, Rabin decided against accelerating talks uh, because he felt that that would potentially, you know, dishonor the the uh, the terms of the invitation that James Baker uh, had made to, to both sides when it came to uh, getting to that signing point in 1993. But in the interim time between the first Oslo Accord uh, and, and the second, and then definitely by the time we get to Camp David, where you were part of the negotiations, Professor Dejani, so much happened, right? I mean, we have right. we have the five months after the first Oslo Accord, we have an Israeli settler opening fire, right, on playing on praying Palestinians in Hebron, a huge moment. Then we have Hamas in nineteen ninety-four sending a, a suicide bomber to blow up an Israeli bus, the first of about a dozen of attacks launched by Hamas. Uh, of course, and then in 1995, Rabin himself is assassinated by far-right wing religious, uh, uh, a religious Jew, or two two brothers. Some people say that gap between um, the trust building of first Oslo Accord and then the the hard work of making the big decisions about territory, about Jerusalem, about refugees, that that gap was part of the problem. What do you think about that? I couldn't agree more, Meghna. Um, I think it's important to bear in mind that when Palestinians entered the peace process, um, formally in 1991, and when the Bush administration inaugurated the Madrid process, but the Oslo process uh, there again after, after two years in 1993, they had already been living under military occupation since 1967. That means no political rights, 
very, very severely restricted civil rights, uh, little opportunity to build their economy. Um, and they believed that uh, finally, um, after all of this time, um, independence, freedom, dignity were just around the bend um, in a state of their own. They believed that um, having consented to Israel's, uh, uh, having recognized Israel, that uh, on, on 78% of the land that had been ta- uh, Palestine, that what was left, the 22%, um, would quickly uh, come under their uh, authority and jurisdiction. And so it was a shock to Palestinians that during the course of the Oslo uh, process's um, interim period, which continues, by the way, uh, to this day, uh, but during this long transition, um, it was a shock to them that uh, not only did um, uh, conditions not improve radically, but uh, that there were additional movement restrictions that were placed um, uh, upon the movement of both persons and goods during that time. Now, in part, that was a function of the changed security situation in Israel as a result of suicide bombings that occurred um, uh, that, that Hamas uh, had undertaken in the mid-90s. But Palestinians also felt that uh, their ability to build an economy was severely circumscribed. And that was all the more the case when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu became prime minister of Israel in 1996, his first time in that role, right. and began rolling back some of the commitments that um, uh, Israel had already made to the Palestinians. Hmm. So yes, I think um, all of those factors were significant in Palestinians' disappointment with uh, the way the interim period was going. So Yossi Balin, we have about a minute before our next break, so I'll, I'll let you begin to answer this question, because I'm trying to understand if... Uh, I mean, it's inter- so interesting and bothersome, I have to say, to hear that uh, the same names, Netanyahu, Hamas, that we're talking about from the from the mid '90s, are uh, you know at at the heart of the situation now between Israelis and uh, Palestinians. But do you think that mine, in the absence of uh, evidence of concrete uh, progress? that long gaps between talks are indeed a problem. Well, there's, there's no question. I mean, there's a, the, the gap between the expectations and the reality always are, are having a, a, a very problematic impact. And in our case, uh, that was uh, the, the, the same on both sides. I mean, the Israelis believed that if uh, we, we sign an agreement, then security-wise, there would be a quiet situation. The Palestinians believed that they would have a state much earlier, and uh, this did not happen. Mm. Yossi Balin and Omar Dejani, hang on for just a moment. We have much more to learn from both of you about what to learn from the Oslo peace process. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth. 
once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Omar Dejani joins us. From 1999 to 2001, he served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team at Camp David and Taba. And Yossi Balin is also with us as well. He was Israel's deputy foreign minister from 1992 to 95 and later minister of justice from 1999 to 2001, a very key architect or initiator of the Oslo peace process. Yossi Balin, let me ask you, I have heard that, I mean, you were obviously continuously at work on trying to realize um, the process that Oslo had uh, had had initiated. And I want, do you, you even had something of a, of a map at one time to propose uh, what uh, Israel and Palestinian territories should look at and that you were ready to, or had presented to Prime Minister Rabin, but he was assassinated. Can you tell us that story? Well, the story is that immediately after the Oslo uh, agreement was signed, I went to Tunisia to meet with uh, Yasser Arafat, and uh, I agreed with him that uh, parallel to the negotiations about the interim agreement, which uh, began only then, uh, I would uh, negotiate with somebody he trusted uh, secretly on a permanent agreement. And maybe we will uh, make it the, the efforts for the interim agreement redundant. Uh, he was ready for that, and he uh, gave the mandate to uh, to Abu Mazen, to the current uh, president uh, of the Palestinians. And for more than two years, we negotiated uh, the the peace, uh, the permanent agreement, uh, which included a map. Uh, and and got to the details for the first time between the two parties uh, on all the issues of uh, refugees, Jerusalem, you name it. And um, then I I said to Rabin that I would like to uh, meet with him and talk with him. I was then the Minister of Economy. And uh, he, of course, said, whenever you you want. And uh, I had to go to the United States for a short visit uh, and then during uh, these uh, few days, uh, Rabin was assassinated. So I never showed it uh, to him. Oh, that is incredible to hear, Yossi Balin. So is there the possibility? Do you think that there was any possibility that had you had that opportunity to meet with Prime Minister Rabin, that he would have accepted the map and the and the agreement that you would you were supposed to put in front of him. I hoped so, but you know, to uh, describe history retroactively um, or alternative history is always very dangerous. Yes. I, I would like to believe that the answer is yes, but I'm not sure. 
I, I agree. It's hard to resist asking the counterfactual question, but you're absolutely right. We cannot know. But it sounds like that was one of those moments where, again, radicalism intervened with the process that could have been successful. I, I mean, Omar Dajani, what do you think about w- when you hear that story from Yossi Balin? I think that uh, there was a there were a lot of uh, uh, missed opportunities uh, over the course of the period that we were negotiating to get down to the to the details. Um, and uh, what what it, one of the things that is tragic is that um, it was already it, that we waited all the way until 1999 to come back to the agenda that uh, that Yossi and Abu Abu Mazen began. Uh, as early as 1996. Um, by that time, as you pointed out earlier, there was already a lot of uh, bad blood uh, flowing under the bridge, and that's uh, that's a problem. Um, but I, I I will say that one of the things that uh, hindered the negotiations as we um, moved into Camp David in 2000 was the fact that there hadn't really been adequate attention to a lot of the details that needed to resolving regarding everything from where the where exactly the border was going to run, including through Jerusalem, uh, regarding what the fate of Israeli settlements would be, regarding what the security arrangements would be, regarding what the fate of Palestinian refugees would be, um, and a range of other issues. Um, And I think that uh, as important as the preliminary negotiations that were done earlier on were, uh, there was a, a, a crucial need to get to some of that detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, by the time we get to Camp David, though, uh, Professor Dijani, as I understand it, eventually the U.S. did present uh, options to Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian negotiating team. I think maybe the, one of the ones that's publicly best known is, is the one where um, there would have been Palestinian sovereignty over, what, 95-ish percent of the West Bank. Uh, ref- some refugees would have had the right to return to the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and there would have been uh, Palestinian sovereignty or over Arab neighborhoods and the Temple Mount in Ju- Jerusalem. But the uh, the reporting at the time indicated that uh, Yasser Arafat said no to those offers. I mean, is are those some so of the I, missed opportunities? I, 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 yeah, go ahead. So I, I would say, first of all, that, that that was not the offer on the table at Camp David itself. I think um, there it's important to bear in mind. So some of what you're pointing to uh, was a way of looking at the ideas that were presented by President Clinton in December of 2000. Afterwards, um, yes. Thank you for the correction. Right, right. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, at Camp David, it was much more oblique. Uh, we were bearing in mind that just six weeks earlier, we had received a map from uh, the Israeli government that provided for Israel's continuing control over around a third of the West Bank. So to get a sense of um, uh, how uh, little preparation there had been done um, with respect to the summit at Camp David, bear bear in mind where Israel was six weeks earlier. And so uh, as we are uh, in the early stages of the Camp David talks, one of the things that's a problem is that the uh, uh, Barack government is presenting different ideas regarding different issues at different times. The proposal that Israel offered was never um, coherently presented as a single package. And very often it was framed in terms of oblique principles, Palestinians having been burned, as we were discussing earlier, by years of um, uh, problematic uh, implementation of the vague commitments 
in the interim accords were very, very reluctant to green light um, an accord that didn't look like an accord, that just looked like a set of vague ideas um, that had, and there was no discussion whatsoever of refugees, period, um, until we arrived at Camp David. And even then there was no discussion of Palestinian right of return, which for Palestinians is to their homes inside the state of Israel, mm. uh, though Palestinians signaled that they were uh, prepared to uh, be very, very flexible with regard to implementation if the principle were affirmed. So um, uh, at Camp David itself, uh, Palestinians found themselves on the one hand with these very vague proposals, and on the other, uh, they found themselves with a mediator uh, in the form of the United States mm -hmm. that was anything but unbiased. Um, Aaron David Miller, who uh, was a leading American diplomat under six uh, or seven U.S. administrations, uh, wrote a piece in the Washington Post in which he talked about what uh, was called the no surprises policy, pursuant to which uh, uh, the United States had to run by Israel any idea that it was going to place on the table for the talks before presenting it to the Palestinians. Um, and what, in his words, he said, you know, we cast ourselves as Israel's lawyer in these talks. Right. Uh, and and I think that that also made it very difficult for Palestinians who, sitting at this summit um, under incredible pressure uh, to negotiate on the fly um, things that had not really been addressed in detail, um, and seeing that uh, the world's, uh, at that juncture, only superpower is running everything by Israel first, Palestinians became incredibly cagey. Uh, and I think that goes some of the distance to explaining our posture during those talks. I see. Well, Yossi Balin, let me, I'd love to hear your response to that, because, of course, Dennis Ross is also on the record as, in his view, uh, the Palestinian Palestinian negotiating team said no to a lot of things. Uh, and and again, this is Dennis Ross's view, never came up with a sort of viable counter proposals. And Omar, I know you very likely <laughs> object to what uh, sure, Dennis sure. Ross has said. I want to acknowledge that. But, but, but Yossi Balin, just uh, again, in the spirit of seeking out what lost opportunities were, do you think there were lost opportunities at Camp David? I don't know about uh, about Ken David whether it was a lost opportunity. I believe that the negotiations uh, were done in a very amateurish way, if I may say so, uh, on uh, on the side of the Americans, the side of the Israelis, and the side of the Palestinians. I think that few months afterwards, as Omar said, there were the Clinton parameters on December, I believe, twenty four suggested to both sides at the same time. These parameters were in a way, a way to, uh, uh, to summarize the views of both sides and to suggest bridging ideas. And it was, in, in my view, it is a very good paper. And uh, Clinton uh, showed it to both sides. He asked uh, both sides to give him the, the, the answer until Wednesday, I remember, we had a special cabinet meeting and uh, there was a tough debate and eventually we agreed to it. And then uh, Arafat went uh, to, to the States uh, with an answer which was actually no. Mm. And I know it from Clinton himself. He, he was very, very upset by the answer of uh, Arafat. He did not say no to him, but Arafat somehow gave him the very clear impression that he he was not ready for uh, to agree to some such uh, such ideas 
And uh, I, he also told me something about, the, about Camp David, uh, that at a certain point, there was an American special, uh, specific suggestion, and Arafat came to, uh, to uh, Clinton and, and uh, said to him, you know, Mr. President, if I accept your offer, you will come to my funeral. Mm. So I asked the president, what did you answer? And he said, what could I say? And then he said, what you would I would say, AOC? And I said to him, had it been up to me, I would say, so what? How can you, you compare the, the idea of peace with your own life? Wow. That's it. Yeah, you know, given that, I cannot imagine sort of the the crushing sadness and disappointment both of you are, are you both of you are feeling right now given the devastation that's going on uh in in Israel and and Gaza which is why in the last few minutes of the conversation i would love to have your historical expertise guide us forward if at all possible and and mr balen it is remarkable i i i have an article before me that says in september of this year so before October 7th, but in September of this year, you were giving a talk with uh, Chatham House in London. And you being the key initiator of Oslo, you said, I think the best thing which should happen to Oslo is to kill it. It's being abused by those who don't want a permanent agreement and prefer the zero-sum game. First of all, did you say that? And B, what is the alternative? Well, of course, I mean, I, I don't want to cherish an agreement which was uh, signed 30 years ago for five years and uh, since then is uh, alive and kicking. I mean, th this was not my original idea and neither the, the idea of my superiors uh, and, and all, no, of, the, of the Palestinians. But, uh, you know, Omar and myself are involved in, in the same project of suggesting, su suggesting a, a Holy Land a confederation. Uh, and and uh, under which both uh, countries, both states, will be independent and uh, fully sovereign, but uh, will will have a joint umbrella. Uh, the the model is the EU, uh, and under this umbrella there will be much more cooperation than otherwise uh, envisaged, and uh, there will be also a special uh, arrangement for the uh, settlers. Uh, which will solve the, the, the major problem of, of uh, the, the future negotiations, which are the settlements, by allowing those uh, who would like to remain in the Palestinian state as uh, permanent uh, residents to, re to remain also Israeli citizens. And the same number of Palestinian citizens will be allowed to Israel as uh, permanent uh, residents. And I believe that now we are closer to, to peace than in September. Because apparently, Hamas will not will not be the the, the powerful uh, spoiler as it was before, because we have an American president who is committed to the two state solution and repeats it twice a day at least. And in such a situation, when I believe that the Israeli government of today, which is really the most extreme rightist one, will not prevail politically mm. a, a day after the war, it might be much more realistic to speak about a two-state solution, maybe uh, under uh, uh, the confederations that we are suggesting. Wow. Well, Omar, we have about a minute left. Professor Dejani, I should say. 
Do you share no, that, that same optimism? Because it's quite something to hear given the current situation on the ground. I'd say just a few things. The first is that I um, totally agree with the vision uh, of a two-state confederation, and I think it's the best uh, approach for Israel-Palestine. I think getting there faces some hurdles. I think that that an important one is, as Yossi pointed out, is the current government in Israel. I worry about the increasingly um, right-wing sort of shift in Israeli public opinion, and I hope that that changes. But I think if we're if we're to prevail, what we need from the United States is what we didn't have back in 2000, which is a clear commitment to what the end game looks like. Not just saying we hope for peace, we hope for a better future, but saying what we need is a two uh, a two state solution with the two states united in a confederation with freedom of movement and residence for both peoples, and a serious uh, effort to address all of the issues that are on table with equality. Mm. It seems to me, again, just from my observation and listening to both of you as well today, that another thing that is required for any process to work is the 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 abnegation of extreme stands on on either side of, of the far right wing government, as Yossi Balin, as you're pointing out, in Israel, and of Hamas's continuous willingness to use extreme violence as well. But I cannot thank both of you enough for joining us today, Yossi Balin key initiator of the Oslo Accords, joining us today from Tel Aviv. Mr. Balin, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Omar Dejani, now a professor at the University of Pacific. In 1999 to 2001, he was one of the chief legal advisors to the Palestinian negotiating team. Omar, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This is On Point.